At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. They missed. <laughs> Leon, are you hurt? Is the baby hurt? They missed. The bastard missed entirely. You hear that, Stalin? This has to end. We can't go on. Do you hear me, Stalin? You mongrel dog. Leon Trotsky lives. I defy you. Leon. I defy you. <laughs> There are two famous, or maybe infamous, depictions of Leon Trotsky. One is a newspaper print casting him as St. George, gallant and battling a serpent labeled counter-revolution. The other, also a newspaper print, depicts Trotsky naked, devil red, perched atop a throne of skulls with a bloody knife. Well, there's a case for each. Leon Trotsky seemingly lived two lives at once both the linchpin of the Russian Revolution and a tyrant of communism. Either way, hero or war criminal, the world knew Leon Trotsky. But how many of us recognize his name today? There's a reason for that. Leon Trotsky, spokesman of the 20th century's greatest political revolution, wasn't just murdered. He was purposely expunged from history. We'll get to the reason why, but in turning over his life, we're remembering not just the icon, but the man between those two newspaper drawings. How does a writer overthrow a nation? And what does he lose in the process? His family? His legacy? All that and more. This is the life and death of Bolshevik revolutionary Leon Trotsky. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Famous Fates, a podcast original exclusive to Spotify. Each week, we'll release five fresh episodes centered around a common theme, such as Hollywood icons, influential women, or music legends. In each episode, we'll take a close look at the remarkable life of a different person. 
with the help of voice actors, will dramatize their incredible lives, reimagining their greatest and weakest moments. Then we'll examine their controversial deaths. Some deaths came too soon, some remained shrouded in mystery, and some changed the world forever. Today, we're covering Bolshevik revolutionary Leon Trotsky. In the first half of the 20th century, he was a revolutionary writer, a communist leader, and a man assassinated on the orders of Joseph Stalin. You can find episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Famous Fates for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find it on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Now, back to the life of Leon Trotsky. Trotsky entered into a world in transition. Russia had just undergone an economic overhaul, the 700-year practice of serfdom abolished by Alexander II. And Russia's growth spurt continued as an industrial revolution rocketed them into the 20th century, giving power to the industrial working class, the proletariat which in turn reintroduced the works of the proletariat's political champion, German writer-philosopher Karl Marx. Of course, the Tsar and his family didn't approve of the revolutionary implications to Marx's works. A series of assassination attempts on the Romanov family had put the regime on edge. To speak highly of Marx was to court the possibility of Siberian exile. These were dangerous and exciting times, full of new philosophies, new movements, and new punishments to be executed upon overzealous revolutionaries. But Trotsky was raised away from all this. Born November 7, 1879, into a small Ukrainian village 15 miles from the nearest post office. Originally named Lev Davidovich Bronstein, Trotsky was fifth of eight children, born to farmers David Leontievich Bronstein and Anna Lvovna. He was a somewhat fragile boy, prone to fainting spells when scared. But he was fortunate in other ways. David Bronstein had spent his life fighting religious prejudice with his work ethic, and by Lev's birth, he had managed a sizable income for the family. This would later embarrass Trotsky, who hoped to convince his followers that he grew up solidly working class. Trotsky would inherit his father's work ethic, but farming wasn't in his blood. His early classwork suggested a much more intellectual path for the young boy. But for any chance for higher education, young Lev couldn't remain in the backwoods Ukrainian countryside. He would have to leave Yanovka. And so, at the age of nine, Lev traveled 200 miles to the city of Odessa, where he would live with his cousin Moshe, a scientific journalist, and attend St. Paul's Secondary School. That the school was Christian didn't matter much to Lev's family. David was more impressed that St. Paul's was the second best grammar school in the city. And the first didn't allow Jews. And placed higher priority in education than religious piety. Well, the impression must have stuck with the young boy. Trotsky would be an atheist for life. But whatever the religion of his teachers, Lev proved the star pupil. Rarely was there an exam that Lev didn't receive the highest mark in the class. And yet, Lev's greatest lessons likely came from outside the classroom. Odessa was a large metropolis, exposed to travel, customs, cultures, and ideas rarely found in farm country. And of course, there was also his cousin Moshe's printing press. All right, now the E. We paint it right here. You see? Yes? Now, where's the V? V. 
steady, and there. L E V. Who's that? How many? How many what? How many can we make? As much as you want. You can make copies for all your friends, for your teachers. What friends? Plato friends. You can fill the world with words. Send them to Petrograd, to China, to Europe, to America. You know where America is? Everyone knows where America is. No, not everyone. Lots of us go from cradle to casket without knowing or saying a thing. But you're not one of those. You're special. I know. Do you now? Then I'll quit telling you. Come, I smell something better than ink and oil coming from Auntie's kitchen. And so it began. To the dismay of his father, Lev preferred writing to all other school subjects, despite his excellence in math and science. But his political interests wouldn't spring from Moshe's basement. That would come post-1895, when 15-year-old Trotsky left Odessa to finish his education in the smaller port city of Nikolaev. Not that Lev showed much enthusiasm for school anymore, Bored of lectures, he took to playing hooky, exploring the city for other sources of enlightenment. And within a few years, stumbled upon a small group of intellectuals, trading and printing materials on psychology, economics, and socialism. Make no mistake, this was some serious contraband. Many of the group's members were formerly, or currently, in exile for sharing such materials. But Lev, the youngest by years, dove headlong into the new material. He soon proved himself one of the most eloquent... And obstinate and arrogant... Definitely arrogant members of the group. Though still occasionally fainting under stress, he learned to control heated arguments with the skill of a surgeon. A member of the group commented quite prophetically... He'll either be a great hero or a great scoundrel, but he'll rise to greatness. Still, he met his match in Alexandra Sokolovskaya, the group's hardcore Marxist. Sure, for those who need an instruction manual to their own opinions, Marxism is ideal. No, Marx is a conclusion. You'd rather steal lines from every other socialist than actually compile a philosophy and say something about the world. I'd rather not split my personality to conform to some narrow teaching. Right there, you stole that from Mikhailovsky. Dear God, will someone please make them stop? You know what your problem is, Alexandra? Please share. You expect someone to have the answer. You don't realize to what extent you must pick through the fragmentations of the current political detritus that we call philosophy and do the work yourself. Do you know what your problem is, Lev? What's that? You're an asshole. They soon fell in love. And Trotsky would later concede to Alexandra, switching to lifelong Marxism. Together, he and Alexandra began printing revolutionary pamphlets for the group. But not for long. In January of 1898, an informant tipped off police to Lev and Alexandra's amateur press. Officers raided the house the next day. Upstairs! Check upstairs! Hide the pamphlets. Where? Under the bed. Anywhere. They're in here. Another shot. They're all over, Lev. I can't. I can't. All right. Stop. Stop. What are we going to do? What do you think of Siberia? And so, at 19 years old, Trotsky would go into exile for the first time. Fortunately for Lev and Alexandra, married couples had the right to stay together through exile. They rushed a ceremony, became husband and wife, and spent the first summer of the new century traveling 1,400 miles to the small village of Ustkut, their new home. As far as exile went, Ustkut ran fairly mid-level. 
The weather was harsh, but not Arctic. Disease ran rampant, but the guards weren't sadistic. The newlywed Bronsteins were allowed to go into town, work odd jobs in accounting, and start a new life. Alexander soon gave birth to their first daughter, Zeneda, and their second, Nina, a year later. These days would be the last quiet era in Trotsky's life for a long time. It was domestic, family-oriented, simple. Simple couldn't last for Lev Bronstein. A newspaper named Eastern Review began publishing his writings under the pen name Antid Otto. And soon gave him a running column entitled Everyday Rural Life. His wit for the ironies of Russian countryside soon found a steady and then growing readership. He would critique the government, laud socialism, and taunt the censors all with a subtlety that kept him from arrest. For instance, he spoke of the local care for the mentally ill. They were kept for observation in prisons, which, because of the lack of hospitals, were renamed the Psychiatric Department of the Local Sanitary Authority. In one case, two homeless invalids, an old insurgent and an old policeman, the same policeman who had once escorted the insurgent to the place of deportation, lived in the same prison cell for lack of any other asylum. It was through these articles that Lev Bronstein became a writer. And Antid Otto became a household name among the Siberian intelligentsia. His writings traveled across Russia. Then further, through Europe, all the way to London. And into the hands of a popular Russian revolutionary in exile named Vladimir Lenin. Lenin and a small group of Marxists, now calling themselves the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, commonly the RSDLP, had recently established a newspaper out of London called Iskra, or Spark. Part newspaper, part political movement, Iskra was a call to all professional Russian revolutionaries to band together under a united cause. Immediately, Lev wanted to join them. He'd read Lenin's book, What is to be Done, and, one can assume, felt similarly affected by the question. There was, however, the matter of imprisonment. 5,000 miles lay between Lev and Iskra, most of which crossed exile-hostile territory. The RSDLP managed an underground escape network for exiles, but it contained huge gaps and would require excessive funds. And of course, there was the matter of Lev's family. It's the chance of a lifetime. Not now. They're looking for writers. They need writers who can... Zineda, go with your sister. You will miss all of this. I'm sorry. Don't apologize. You won't know your daughter's first words. You won't know when they're sick or when they're hurt. Alex, I'm sorry. My girls will grow up to every ounce the genius of their father, and you will have no idea. Don't be cruel. I wanted revolution, Lev. Remember that? Why can't I leave? Because you can't write like I can. Zineda, I hear you. You have to go. Go. You have my blessing. Now leave. You'll write me Zin's first words? If I have the time. You will. If I have the time. I'll help you pack. In the summer of 1902, a hay wagon left Ustkut heading east. Hidden in the hay sat one of Russia's most important figures of the coming century. But for his escape, Lev Bronstein could no longer exist. A new identity, officiated by government documents and international visas, was in order. Lev Bronstein stayed in Ustkut. It was Leon Trotsky who was heading to London. In October 1902, Trotsky arrived broke and tired at Lenin's front door in the very early morning, waking him and his wife with incessant pounding. However, Lenin seemed happy enough to see Trotsky, greeting him upon opening the door. Ah, the pen has arrived. 
to which Trotsky responded with an extended critique of the Iskra's escape network and suggestions for its improvement. Lenin immediately liked Trotsky and dispatched him on a series of debates and speeches in Whitechapel, Paris, and other Iskra strongholds throughout Europe. Trotsky went from writing in his cabin to hosting crowds of thousands. On his amplified platform, he showed his ability not just to argue, but to thrill. It seems as if the new century, this gigantic newcomer, were bent at the very moment of its appearance to drive the optimist into absolute pessimism and civic nirvana. Death to utopia, death to faith, death to love, death to hope thunders the 20th century in salvos of fire and in the rumbling of guns. Surrender, you pathetic dreamer. Here I am, your long-awaited 20th century, your future. No, replies the unhumbled optimist. You, you are only the present. Mm, Even reading the transcript gives me chills. Trotsky could employ equal parts emotion and elegance, speaking off the cuff rather than pre-writing his works. And most importantly, he knew his audience. His words resonated not just with the upper class, but with Trotsky's favorite listeners, the proletariat. A true Marxist, Trotsky believed the proletariat had to be the cornerstone of any revolution. His speeches had to inspire highbrow and lowbrow audiences. He was surprised to find that the other Iskra members didn't necessarily agree. Unbeknownst to Trotsky, the newspaper's leadership was divided between the younger New Guard, led by Lenin and Julius Martov, and the Old Guard, led by the so-called founder of Russian socialism, Georgi Plekhanov. Plekhanov assumed Trotsky to be insolent, untalented, and subservient to Lenin, a cheap pawn to win majority votes. So the old leader blocked Lenin's nomination for Trotsky to Iskra's editorial board. Bit of a sting after 5,000 miles of travel. Well, it was Trotsky's first encounter with party politics. The RSDLP was less a unified party and more a mix of conflicting opinions vying for control. Each had a different answer for the question, who did Iskra represent and where would change begin? After all, a whopping two-thirds of the Russian population worked under the Tsar's failing agricultural program, peasantry, not proletariat. For the revolution Trotsky imagined, the disillusion of the proletariat and peasantry would have to be channeled into change. Many, including Lenin, saw this as naive. The debate came to a head on June 17, 1903, at the Second Party Congress. Lenin asserted that official party members should only be full-time professional revolutionaries. While his ally, Julius Martov, disagreed. Anyone who supported their ideals should be a party member, no matter their class or the extent of their contribution. Once again, the party split. The real surprise came when Trotsky sided with Martov. Describe to me exactly what you think you're doing out there. I was expressing an opinion. You were expressing the wrong opinion. The wrong opinion? Or we happen to disagree? Here I was, under the impression that we had gathered for the open exchange of personal- Shut up! Just shut up! You are new, you are young. You have potential, great potential. But you, Leon, are a scrub of dirt, and I am your gardener. Understand? No, Vladimir, I don't think you explained it well enough. At the Congress's end, two distinct groups emerged. The Bolsheviks, headed by Lenin. And the Mensheviks, which included Trotsky. 
This marked the start of one of Trotsky's lifelong dedications. And despite the constant forming and reforming of party lines, he never voted by politics. He would always support the side he found most immediately correct, even against his allies. One can imagine the trouble that would cause down the road. For now, the RSDLP left the Second Congress weakened by its new rift. And Lena learned what it felt like to be on the wrong side of Trotsky's pen. In his essay, Our Political Tasks, Trotsky accused Lenin of obsession with central control, losing touch with his original objective. He also accused Martov of cowardice and publicly criticized the Menshevik program. Though he somewhat belonged to both parties, he took no issue with slamming them equally. In fact, there may have been only one person in Europe at the time not sick of Trotsky. Just before the Second Congress, he had met a young militant of the party named Natalia Sadova. Natalia was a beautiful, cultured woman who had obtained Trotsky's lodging when he first toured Europe. They became smitten by each other, and Natalia was soon finding lodging for the two of them. Meanwhile, Trotsky had all but stopped sending letters back to Ustkut. Alexandra and his daughters existed in a different life, the life of Lev Bronstein. It should be noted that Trotsky would have two sons with Natalia and spent the remainder of his years happily married to her, despite rumors of his philandering. Still, be it Lev or Leon, Natalia would accept the same lesson as Alexandra. For Trotsky, the revolution came first, always. This would be put to the test on January 22, 1905. A date later deemed Bloody Sunday. Independent of our revolutionaries, a crowd of over 3,000 factory workers had gathered in the streets of Petrograd. The workers had gone on strike after a string of layoffs and now planned to march on the Winter Palace, workplace of Tsar Nicholas II, in nonviolent protest. The crowd met no police resistance until they reached the palace, where a line of imperial guards blocked their progress. Unarmed, the crowd moved forward toward the soldiers. Between 10 and 11 a.m., the guards began firing into the mass. At day's end, conservative figures estimated casualties approached a thousand. Many of whom were bystanders, unaffiliated with the march. Tsar Nicholas II, who had not been at the palace that day, called the incident painful and sad. But for the revolutionaries, it was more than they ever dared to hope for. Protests and strikes broke out across Russia. The country's infrastructure shut down. Anti-Tsarism ran high. The revolution seemed to be on hand. When Trotsky first heard the news, he did exactly what most expected of him. He fainted. And was soon revived and raring to action. The strikers had momentum but lacked leadership. The RSLDP needed to grab power while the iron was hot, which meant returning to Russia to steer public opinion toward revolution. Among the Iskra board, Trotsky was one of the very few who broke his exile for Petrograd. Despite his arrest on sight warrant, he and Natalia packed their things and traveled into the belly of the beast. Where Trotsky took to writing some of his most incendiary work, spurning forward the proletariat. And slamming his opponents. That liberalism which did not care to know about the revolution, which hatched plots behind the scenes, which ignored the masses, which counted only on its diplomatic genius, has been swept away. We are done with it for the entire period of the revolution. His target here is the non-revolutionary Democrats, disparagingly known as the Cadets. Though he's probably also sending a barb toward the Bolsheviks. Still, Trotsky assumed the face of the revolution for the RSDLP. He joined onto a council of leaders representing the workers known as the Soviet. And was soon nominated as chairman when his predecessor was arrested. 
Trotsky had control. In the streets and homes of Petrograd, his was the name associated with socialism. But 1905 would not be the year of the revolution. The fragmented RSDLP, its Mensheviks and Bolsheviks and socialists and liberals, could not effectively steer the strikers to revolt. The Tsar conceded to the masses and coaxed the strikers back into the factories. The cadets, who remained critical but not hostile to the throne, gained power. And on November 26th, armed guards surrounded and arrested the Soviet. Trotsky would once again be forced into exile. If not for the wonderful inefficiency of the Russian prison system. By feigning illness, Trotsky halted the progression of his transport north. Soon afterward, he made a daring escape through the wilderness toward Petrograd, now known as St. Petersburg. None of his pursuers expected him to head directly west. Which would have been like traveling from Los Angeles to Chicago in the middle of a Siberian winter, mostly by reindeer sled. But once again, Trotsky survived. He met with Natalia south of the capital and fled to the Finnish village of Ogilbayu. There, they recuperated. With the Tsar back in power, the revolutionaries were back at square one. And Lenin wasn't helping matters. Trotsky's once mentor now spent his time trying to expel all non-Bolsheviks from the party. Trotsky fought to keep the revolutionaries unified, but his relationship with Lenin waned. In a letter to a friend, Trotsky vented his frustration. What a senseless obsession is the wretched squabbling systematically provoked by the master squabbler Lenin. That professional exploiter of the backwardness of the Russian working class movement. Years later, Trotsky would remember and regret that letter. For now, however, Trotsky and Lenin were on the outskirts of Russia, arguing their way around Europe, making themselves irrelevant. It would take another catastrophe to return the revolutionaries to power, an event that would sweep all of Europe into its chaos. In 1914, Serbian revolutionaries assassinated Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and the continent was at war. Trotsky left Vienna, Austria now being hostile to Russians, and joined the other socialists in Switzerland to decide what the revolutionaries thought of the war. Well, they decided they didn't like it. Trotsky proposed a slogan that quickly caught on, peace without conquerors or conquered. For a brief moment, there was unity among the socialists. However, the European countries hosting them weren't taking well to their criticism. Trotsky was expelled from France, then Spain for his writings on the war particularly his newest and most condemning book, The War and the International. The Great War had gone longer and bloodier than anyone could have imagined, and governments were cracking down on dissenters. Trotsky knew his welcome was fading. So on Christmas Day, 1916, Trotsky and his family boarded a steamship to leave Europe behind. They would be heading across the Atlantic to New York City. It should be noted that Leon Trotsky, champion of the proletariat, traveled first class. Upon landing at Ellis Island, he received a welcome worthy of an international rock star. Mr. Trotsky, did you leave Europe for fear of the war? I don't fear the war. I merely sampled the free speech of that continent's so-called democracies and found it falsely advertised. Mr. Trotsky, got any opinion on the conflict over there? I do, and I happen to have written a book on them. Perhaps you'll read it. I hear it's very good. Mr. Trotsky, you've only been here a couple of minutes, but what do you think of New York? Other than it being a living and breathing edifice to the systematic repression of the working class by your capitalist fetishizing government? 
I like the statue. Mr. Trotsky, just a word. Mr. Trotsky, just a word. Mr. Trotsky, just a word. Mr. Trotsky. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Now, back to the life of Leon Trotsky. Trotsky found a platform among the city's radical left and continued to publish from a modest city apartment. But within the year, news from the motherland would call him home. Nicholas II had once again gotten himself into trouble, stuck between the meat grinder of World War I and the collapse of the country's food supply. This time, there would be no compromise. In February 1917, the military joined the Peasant Revolution. The royal family was under arrest. Unfortunately, the hated cadets were waiting in the wings. They established a provisional government following many of the Tsar's old policies. For the revolutionaries, the provisional government had to go. Lenin had the Bolsheviks at the ready, but he couldn't rally the rest of the party without a powerful and respected orator. He needed his pen. Speaking of, Trotsky and his family left New York and arrived in St. Petersburg on May 4th. A crowd cheered him from the platform, hailing him as a hero of the 1905 revolution. But the city's politicians were wary, not knowing with whom Trotsky would side. Neither, it seems, did Trotsky. He spent a long string of months floating between parties, surveying the political atmosphere. And found that Lenin and the Bolsheviks had radically rebranded themselves. In fact, their new platform seems somewhat familiar. We want a workers' government. None of the faux bourgeois nonsense of the cadets. Mm-hmm. A Soviet council representing the proletariat. And no capitalistic interim between regimes, revolution, insurrection, socialism. I see. Martov and the Mensheviks are playing cold feet. We need to act now, temper the fury of the masses, and guide it into a government representative of their needs. What? What are you laughing at? Vladimir, I told you this ten years ago. No, you didn't. I've been proposing the exact same plan for a decade, and you sat across from me right there and told me I was an idealistic loon. I'm sure I did not say loon. Idealistic loon. This is completely different. It is new Bolshevism. You've got to be joking. You... <sighs> All right. All right, Vladimir. And what do you need of me? The team was back together. Trotsky and Lenin set a plan into action. Lenin working within the Bolsheviks. While Trotsky flitted between parties, garrisons and lecture halls, rallying the military and the workers. Both followed nonstop exhausting schedules. One of Trotsky's associates remembers him asking for a cigarette, taking a few puffs and promptly fainting. But their toils paid off in spades. Unrest within the provisional government rose, and the Trotsky-Lenin duo became the face of the opposition. 
Trotsky soon had the army primed to storm the Winter Palace, while Lenin had the party ready with a replacement government. The last opposition came from the Mensheviks, who saw another government take over as dangerous. But by mid-October of that year, Lenin and Trotsky had swayed nearly all of the committee's independent members and overrode Martov. The revolution was set for the end of the month. Failure would mean an end for the socialists. Everything had to go off without a hitch. And remarkably, it did. On October 25, 1917, regiments of guards stormed the Winter Palace, dismantling the provisional government. The Bolsheviks slid neatly into power. Martov and the Mensheviks were furious, but the public sentiment was against them. Trotsky derided his old party with fire and brimstone. Renounce your victory, make concessions, conclude an agreement. We're not asking to. To those who have gone out of here and to those who have put up proposals for compromise, we have to say, you are pathetic individuals. You are bankrupts, your role is played out. Go off to where you belong from now on, in the wastebasket of history. In that case, we are leaving. And out with you. With that, they were all gone. The Romanovs, the cadets, the Mensheviks. Lenin, Trotsky, and the Bolsheviks were in charge. Their central committee ruled the party. Their political wing, the Politburo, ruled the government. A communistic Soviet was in charge. Of course, now they had to solve Russia's crumbling infrastructure, massive famine, doomed war, and revolts by the Tsarist White Army. As always, it's easier to overthrow a government than to run one. Lenin's first priority was the war with Germany. The Bolsheviks had campaigned on exit from World War I and needed to deliver. So Trotsky became the Commissar of Foreign Affairs and left the city to conduct peace negotiations with the Germans. Lousy, sadistic, kraut imbeciles. Wretched turners of the screw. They should be ashamed. I'd rather take proposals from the daft end of a Georgian mule than spend another minute with those inbred, imperialist, suckling... It didn't go well. And the Germans offered such ridiculous terms of surrender that Trotsky had to refuse. But Lenin didn't have a choice. The volunteer Red Army was in shambles. German forces were moving through Russia without opposition. Trotsky stepped down from his position, Commissar of Foreign Affairs, and Lenin agreed to even harsher German terms. It was a rocky start for the Bolsheviks, and would get worse. The White Army had led revolts all around the country. Civil war seemed imminent. And the Soviet needed a military. Trotsky would have to use his organizational prowess and turn the ragtag Red Army into a functioning force. To travel between the many fronts, Trotsky commissioned a massive train that could take him around the country. The train was large enough to require two locomotives. It housed planes, tanks, anti-aircraft guns, a power plant, telegraph stations, a printing press, and a library. Basically, Rail Force One. Ah, exactly. But before he even left the station, Trotsky made a decision that would set him against most of the Central Committee. The Red Army lacked recruits, but more importantly, it lacked leadership, officers who could provide structure and order. So Trotsky called upon the only officers available. He reinstated the old Imperial Guard, the same who had been ousted with Nicholas II. And many of whom saw the communists as the enemy. Trotsky was rebuilding the army with the very soldiers they'd just defeated. Other Soviets accused him of treason, but Trotsky was already off to the northern fronts. As usual, he was in the habit of asking permission. At the first front, he met the two greatest struggles of the Red Army, morale and supplies. 
Starving and ill-equipped soldiers frequently turned and fled from battles before they even started. Trotsky took stock of the supply inefficiencies, managed them soundly, and spoke passionately to troops to rekindle their spirits. Although we are as yet weak in comparison with the European proletariat, it is we whom the wave of events have raised precisely to a tremendous height. The Russian working class is at present the only working class in all the world which is free from political oppression. Yes, we are in a bad way. The country is in ruins, there is no grain. But the Russian working class was the first to draw itself up to its full height, take power and say, now I am going to start to learn how to steer the ship of state. Many accounts remember Trotsky rallying troops under fire from horseback. That's where that St. George imagery came from. And turning full retreats into victories. But those unmoved by Trotsky's words instead felt his wrath. Regarding deserters, he later wrote, So long as the animals that we call men will build armies and wage wars, the command will always be obliged to place the soldiers between the possible death in the front and the inevitable one in the rear. And, true to his word, Trotsky regularly conducted the executions of disobedient or deserting soldiers. Which frequently fell upon the imperial officers he'd hired. As leader of the army, Trotsky demonstrated a brutality that historians tend to scrub clean from his legacy. And much as we might idolize him, Trotsky left a laundry list of atrocities during this period. He approved taking hostage peasant families to ensure recruitment of new soldiers. He voiced his unwavering support for the Red Terror, the Lenin-initiated mass torture and murders. He violently repressed the protests in Poland under the guise of martial law. And he supported the execution of the entire Romanov family to ensure the Tsar couldn't return. Though such bloody turnovers were common in Russian politics, it forces us to view Trotsky as a man not above his circumstances. Trotsky's legacy may be encapsulated by his most famous quote, a means can only be justified by its end, but the end in turn needs to be justified. Yes, Trotsky believed in his cause, and he was willing to kill for it. Still, his methods worked. The Red Army increased from 300,000 to 1 million soldiers in the course of a few months, then to 3 million the next year. And soon began turning out victories. The White Army fell apart, as did following revolts. For decades to come, the military would remember Trotsky as a hero. But his work with the Red Army also brought Trotsky into conflict with a man who would destroy his life, an upstart Bolshevik general named Joseph Stalin. Stalin opposed the use of imperial officers and often resented Trotsky's command of the army. He occasionally disobeyed orders to give himself more prominent roles. Trotsky blamed the military defeats in Poland on Stalin's lust for personal glory. Still, Stalin had made a name for himself through the 1917 revolution. He was a strong organizer and brilliant politician. And when the first Politburo came into being, he took a seat alongside Lenin, Trotsky, and four other notable revolutionaries. Trotsky would forever be unimpressed with Stalin, referring to him as an example of outstanding mediocrity. But for all the words to describe Joseph Stalin, mediocre isn't one. Above all else, Stalin understood the bureaucracy of government. He was also viciously ambitious. He knew that Trotsky was Lenin's right-hand man and presumable heir to the empire. To surpass him, he would need to wear down Trotsky's all-star reputation. His opportunity would rise with the declining health of Vladimir Lenin. Lenin, the absolute leader of the Soviet, would suffer three strokes between 1922 and 1923, incapacitating him and leaving a power vacuum within the Politburo. 
But at this point, Stalin needed help within the Central Committee to take down Trotsky. He quietly formed the Troika with two other members of the Politburo, Grigory Zinoviev and Lev Kamenev. And whatever Trotsky proposes, we oppose? Yes. And any chance to humiliate him, we exploit? With vigor. Sounds simple enough. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Trotsky has a similar proposal for us. Not to offend Joseph, but I wonder what you're offering that he isn't. Grigory, how do you know this food isn't poisoned? It's not difficult. How do you know it isn't poisoned? Lev? Because you're eating too. So I am. Leon Trotsky doesn't take dinner with politicians. He won't converse with you the night before debate or the second before a vote. But I will sit with you. I'll eat with you. And you will always know where we stand. How does that sound to you both? He's been eating the potatoes, hasn't he? (laughs) (laughs) The battle had begun. The Troika first assigned Trotsky to menial governmental positions, then publicly criticized him for refusing. They wanted to make him seem like an outlier to Lenin's unified party. Zinoviev and Kamenev attacked his credibility, while Stalin played the part of moderator. Trotsky could only fight back so much. He was preoccupied with a failing national train system and hostile trade unions. You know, real country running stuff. But remember, Trotsky was known for his arrogance. He likely underestimated his enemies or overestimated his stability. The Soviet party had changed since his 1917 heyday. The bureaucracy was growing, increasing the importance of political allies. And Trotsky had already burned a lot of bridges. To the Soviets, he was a revolutionary, not a politician. Stalin was willing to compromise, play parties, and potentially lead. Though someone who was not impressed was Lenin. The sickly leader saw the danger in Stalin consolidating power. He published an open letter entitled Lenin's Testament, suggesting Stalin's removal. But Lenin was too sick for open debate, and the Troika quickly minimized the letter's spread by publicizing past conflicts between Lenin and Trotsky. Remember that letter Trotsky sent? Lenin the master squabbler? Stalin dug it up and published it through his newspaper, Pravda. Ouch. Stalin was demonstrating another of his skill sets. He could redesign the past, adding or subtracting details according to his narrative. And Trotsky wasn't at his best. The blackout spells were occurring with greater frequency. There's a theory he might have had epilepsy. And generally speaking, he couldn't handle the schedule of his 20s. Each time he abstained from the Central Committee, the Troika further marginalized him. In early 1924, a doctor sent him and Italia to a southern resort where he could spend time away from the stresses of St. Petersburg. Only days after his departure, however, news came from the capital. Vladimir Lenin had died on January 21, 1924. We'll return to our story in just a moment. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Adventure has its own style. It's made of tall trees, unpaved trails, and at the center, the most capable Subaru Forester yet, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. It comes with 9.2 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and advanced dual-function X-Mode. Discover adventure on a deeper level, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. Now, back to the life of Leon Trotsky. Trotsky prepared to return to Petersburg, but a telegram informed him that the funeral would be held that Saturday, too early for his return. The date was a mistake. The funeral was on Sunday. In all likelihood, Stalin forced the mix-up to keep Trotsky away from the ceremony. Throughout Trotsky's life, Lenin had been an enemy, a friend, a mentor, a rival, and above all things, a partner. The slight must have hurt. In October that year, Trotsky published a book entitled Lessons of October, accusing Zinoviev and Kamenev of opposing the 1917 revolution. The Troika parried with an even harsher critique. They suggested that Trotsky's role in the revolution was overstated and that he'd been a Menshevik before 1917 and that he hadn't been personally loyal to Vladimir Lenin. Sickness once again caught up with Trotsky, rendering him unable to fight back. Zinoviev demanded his expulsion from the Politburo. But Stalin stayed the motion, allowing Trotsky to keep his seat. In the public eye, Trotsky was still a leading member of the government. But in reality, he'd been completely shut out. See, Trotsky's contempt for politics had left him exposed. Stalin knew how to stack a vote, how to bully bureaucrats, how to befriend the heads of the military, the secret police, the press. Trotsky still had favor among the masses, but he'd lost the bureaucracy. Luckily, the bureaucracy was sickening of Stalin. Zinoviev and Kamenev had worked in the Troika long enough to realize Stalin wasn't looking for anyone's interests but his own. Still, it was becoming dangerous to stand against Stalin. The two needed someone popular among the people with a big enough name to give them ethos. So, in one of history's brilliant ironies, Trotsky found his lowest adversaries seeking an alliance. He has complete control. Our families are being watched. The people have no idea. They think Lenin's government is still in power. If Lenin could see this. I eat breakfast with Natalia now. Funny how I never had time before. I eat with my wife. I enjoy visits from my children, my friends. I read, I write. How does that sound to the two of you? It sounds like a temporary calm. Life consists of only temporary calms amid perpetual aggravation. If Lenin could see this, you know what I'd think he'd say? Trotsky! I wonder about it. Ceaselessly, even. If Lenin could see this, what? What would he say? And I haven't come up with an answer worthy of my breakfast. Lenin is dead, Trotsky. It's Stalin, or it's you. That's a very strong argument. In 1926, Trotsky and the united opposition rose up within the government, confronting Stalin in and out of the Central Committee. Before, there had been an agreement to preserve party unity in the eyes of the people. That was no more. Private argument was now public debate. At its center, Trotsky and Stalin went at each other like dogs. Socialism in one country. We can't wait for the rest of the world to... The rest of the world is the entire point! Please, comrade, allow yourself to see even a moment into the future to appreciate- Comrade Trotsky, while you are gallivanting off in your daydreams, the rest of us have the present to handle. 
Europe has had no revolutions. Your theory proved wrong. Let us move forward. Apologies, Comrade Stalin, but while you were in the backwaters of Georgia, we had a revolution for these ideals, by these principles. Europe must be socialist. And anyone in this room who says otherwise is a short-sighted, idiotic- You are a pathetic individual. Excuse me? You are a pathetic individual entirely robbed of any elementary sense of truth. A coward and a bankrupt. Your mouth spews like a mirror. A rascal and a villain who has indulged in saying things that absolutely fail to correspond to reality. That is my answer to you. May I have my response? Please. The first secretary poses his candidacy for the post of gravedigger of the party and the revolution. At this point, we may have an implicit bias for Trotsky, hearing his rise from childhood to revolutionary from beginning to end. But Stalin had a strong case against him. Trotsky had shown many failures as the leader of the Red Army following the Civil War. He had committed atrocities at this point on par with Stalin. And as soon as he was in power, he had viciously put down the revolutionary causes that most resembled his rise. It's one of those games historians play, guessing how the 20th century would have played out if Trotsky, not Stalin, emerged from the fray victorious. Would we have seen a utopian USSR, as Marx may have envisioned it? or if the millions to perish under Stalin would have fared the same either way. The main difference between the two, it seems, lies in Trotsky's famous quote, a means can only be justified by its end. But the end in turn needs to be justified. To Stalin, the revolutionary cause was a vehicle for advancement, one that he drove exquisitely. But from those first pamphlets in Nikolaev, Trotsky was a true socialist. He believed in the proletariat and fought for their empowerment. It's easy to call him an idealist, but consider what that cost him. He stood against arguably the most powerful dictator in the world for an ideal. And he lost. Trotsky lost his seat in the Politburo, then in the Central Committee. Following a protest march against the government, he and the rest of the United Opposition were then expelled from the party. Though Trotsky was ready to continue the fight, his allies were not. Zinoviev and Kamenev thought they could regain their post in the Troika should they repent to Stalin. They were right initially. In the coming years, Stalin would host a series of show trials to condemn political traitors, where he would execute both of them. By 1927, Trotsky had lost his license to stay in Russia. Even after overthrowing the government, Trotsky would once again find himself in exile. This time, he and his family traveled in Mexico. The world had turned its back on the ousted Bolshevik, but Trotsky found sympathy in the Mexican painter Diego Rivera and his wife, Frida Kahlo. From Rivera's famous Blue House, Trotsky listened to Stalin's show trials, where he sentenced Trotsky and many others to death for crimes against the party. This time there would be no daring return to St. Petersburg. Trotsky continued to publish works from the Blue House, but the world had all but forgotten him. Everyone, of course, except for Stalin. Few had the persistence of Joseph Stalin, and nothing could have irritated him more than his rival quietly scribbling on the other side of the world. Trotsky left the Blue House following a dispute with Rivera and took up residence in a less secure apartment nearby. His sickness had progressed, this time high blood pressure and heart murmurs. Trotsky felt that death was imminent. And in 1940, he published Trotsky's Testament, his final published work. Only a few months later, a gang of gunmen raided the apartment and fired through the wall of Trotsky's bedroom as he was sleeping. Leon? Leon! They missed! <laughs> the bullets had just missed Trotsky and his family. 
Still, he refused to take on more security, often taking unknown visitors without the company of a guard. Trotsky was sure that his health would give out before his defenses. He'd written out his will to Natalia and seemed to be preparing for death. His work now centered mostly around an extensive biography he was writing, detailing the life and influences of comrade Joseph Stalin. But he would never finish. On August 20th, 1940, Trotsky took a meeting with a local painter, Ramon Mercader, to discuss the young man's political essay. They went to Trotsky's office alone. As Trotsky turned to take a final glance at the essay on his desk, Mercader slid out an ice pick he hidden in his jacket. And drove it into Trotsky's skull. Trotsky managed to fight back. In Mercader's interrogation, he would show police the bite marks on his hand where the old man had latched on. But the first blow would be fatal. Thirteen hours later, Trotsky would die in the hospital with Natalia by his side. Stalin wasn't finished with Trotsky. He would desecrate Trotsky's name in Soviet Russia's history books, painting him as an enemy of the revolution. But in 1987, Trotsky's books would find publishing in the Soviet Union. And in 2001, his legacy was officially rehabilitated. The house of his murder is now a museum dedicated to his life, run by his grandson, Esteban Volkov. As for our final impression of Trotsky, we might turn to his final description of himself in his testament. For 43 years of my conscious life, I have remained a revolutionist. For 42 of them, I have fought under the banner of Marxism. If I had to begin all over again, I would, of course, try to avoid this or that mistake. But the main course of my life would remain unchanged. I shall die a proletarian revolutionist, a Marxist, a dialectical materialist, and consequently, an irreconcilable atheist. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Famous Fates, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Famous Fates on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Remember, it's a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find the show right here. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.